Welcome to another special episode of Flyover Country. I'm Scott Jennings, joined by Kevin Grout and Jared Crawford this week. We are honored to have in the studio with us the Attorney General of the state of Mississippi, Lynn Fitch, who is quite an historic figure, Kevin. She's uh, she's checked off quite a few uh, oh, yeah. never-befores. Right. She is the first uh, woman ever elected to that job in Mississippi as Attorney General and the first Republican since 1878. And Time Magazine named her Jared. One of the most hundred influential people in the world. Uh, coming off the Dobbs case, really great to hear the sort of inside baseball of how yeah. that happened. Uh, and now she's running for re-election. She's got some interesting policy positions for the future. Great conversation with Attorney General. Mississippi, Louisiana, and of course Kentucky are the three states that have off-year elections this year. She came to Kentucky uh, a few days ago to receive an award from Right to Life here, uh, and she was nice enough to stop by the Flower Country Podcast Studios. Coming up, our conversation with Mississippi Attorney General Lynn Fitch. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. Mississippi Attorney General Lynn Fitch, welcome to Flyover Country. Thanks, I'm excited about being here with you all. And you're in Louisville, Kentucky, where we record the show, and uh, we talk about issues here sort of uh, from a middle America, flyover perspective, and we're glad that you're in Kentucky. Tell us, what brings you to, to Louisville this week? Why are you here? had an amazing time. I recently was at the uh, Louisville Right to Life. What a great organization, that chapter. What an event. Uh, we had Rachel uh, Campos Duffy was the keynote speaker. I had an opportunity to speak at the event as well and to talk about the great things that are happening in Kentucky, happening across our country, and then the work and, and the opportunities that we have ahead of us. Well, you're uh, certainly one of the most well-known people in the pro-life community right now in the world. You're probably one of the most influential people for American public affairs right now over the last couple of years. Your personal impact on our national discourse, on law, on uh, you know the way we're framing uh, a lot of issues in this country right now, it's just hard to overstate the impact you have. And so we're so grateful you were able to spend some time with us. I was wondering if you might Reflect on that. I mean, uh, you've been named one of the most influential people uh, by Time Magazine, I think. Have you have you stopped to take a breath and consider, you know, in the arc of your career, uh, did you ever anticipate, you know, a place where you would be one of the people driving conversation uh, throughout all corners of American political discourse? It's amazing. So humbling. Uh, no idea. Um, certainly the case is a God case. Um, our state was chosen for that very reason. And, you know, God puts people at the right places at the right time to come out with the right conclusion. And so it's just been such an honor for myself, for my team, all the partners, coalition members, the prayers, the uplifting, the organizations. And here we are. We we celebrate now because the Dobbs case, we've overturned Roe v. Wade, which, you know, many people didn't think we'd ever have that happen in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. And here's an opportunity. Then we were the ones that were chosen to seize the moment. And, you know, I'm so grateful again for the team and all the, the relationships to to really have the courage and the boldness that we all stood and said, 
Here's the hard question, and we're going to ask it. Can you take us all the way back to the beginning when you first came across the Dobbs case? When did you know this is the case that was going to go the distance? Well, when I, I took office at the attorney general's office, I knew that case was sitting there. Um, we It had been passed in uh, 2018 mm-hmm. on the 15-week abortion ban. Um, it was at the Fifth Circuit. We had lost it in the Fifth Circuit. Um, so the opportunity that was there for us to file a petition to the United States Supreme Court there was never a question. We were absolutely going to do that. Yeah. Um, I did I did not have a solicitor general position, and I created one and appointed the first solicitor general. Um, she filed a petition for us. Uh, amazing time because, again, it's so important that you have a solicitor general for that appellate work, mm-hmm. that appellate guidance. Um, we did that. Uh, the, the court re-enlisted it 22 times before we were picked. <laughs> well, can, can you stop and explain what that means to the listeners that might not, you know, I don't have a JD. <laughs> no, that just means we had filed our petition. You know, they may or may not take up these cases. Right. But you're on the list, basically. And usually on Fridays they come out and they say, well, you know, we're going to take these cases up or we're just going to leave these sitting there. Well, you know, we would sit there, and then that means they, if they reenlist, they put them back. They kept us on the list. Okay. Um, and that's Friday uh, afternoon or Friday mornings. We normally get the information um, on which cases they're going to take up for oral argument. Mm-hmm. So after you know, twenty-two weeks, you know, you think, oh my goodness, <laughs> we may not make the cut here. Um, but on a Monday, they took up our case, which was very unusual. So that kind of set the tone. Yeah. Hey, they're taking our case up. It's a Monday. It's very out of the ordinary for them. And from the moment we got that case, we began working on it. We crafted a strategic plan, an outreach plan, a partner and coalition plan, an amicus brief plan. How would we market this case? And we worked that case every single day. I have so many questions about things that happened along the way. But the one thing that obviously has not been solved is the leak of the draft opinion. And I was wondering if you could take us back and reflect when that news broke. And obviously you'd been intimately involved in in the case. What was going through your mind that day? And are you surprised they've yet identified the person uh, who leaked it? Obviously a highly unusual situation. Absolutely. I mean, think about how horrific Mm -hmm. that the institution of the United States Supreme Court could be compromised. Uh, Just unbelievable for all of us to even think that that happened. Um, I am disappointed we have not found uh, the individual or individuals that did that. Um, Literally, it's something that makes me think, oh, I I think, you know, I I have a a suspicion. Because, again, we got the information that the leak had happened. By the time I turned on the TV, there were already the protesters there. And certainly not from the pro-life side. So I I just don't know how they got that information so quickly and to be on the Supreme Court steps. Now, I will say, when I read... The uh, opinion, we were very excited about it. (laughs) We really wanted to hope that it stayed like that. And certainly I know that the indication was if they put it out there, they would change those hearts, those justices. And, of course, it didn't. Um, And so we're very grateful for that. But there was a a whole level of of prayer and Mm -hmm. and thought that went into, please let this stay pretty much like it is. Because this changes the tapestry of our country. Yeah, from the time of the leak to June 24th when the Dobbs decision was announced, I think all of pro-life America was holding its breath, hoping that that would continue. Uh, what what was it like on that day, on June 24th, when the announcement came out? Oh, it was just unbelievable. I was with my family. You know, we had some anticipation that it might be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just important to be with my family, uh, certainly in touch with my entire uh, team. What a celebration day. I think everybody will remember where they were at that moment in time because, again— 
it changed the, the course of history. Right. And, and now we have a new chapter to write. And so it was an incredible moment. Something you said last night really stuck with me at the Right to Life of Louisville dinner, which you did a fantastic job. It was a great crowd. Uh, very happy that you uh, joined us. Um, was that we're not in a post-Row world. We're in a new Dobbs era. And can, can you speak to that? What does that mean for the pro-life movement, the Republican Party? How do we define this as a new Dobbs era? Well, it's an exciting time. You know, as we argued our, our in our brief and in our oral argument, we said it was all about empowering women and promoting life, that it didn't have to be either or like it was with Roe. And so we asked the justices to give that opportunity back to the states. We need to make that decision on how we do empower women and promote life. And with that comes a lot of um, opportunities, challenges that we need to rise to the occasion to make a difference. And so... We ask for it, and I believe we're ready for it. I truly believe that all Americans are ready to make a difference and to stand up and help the most vulnerable, but help help these children and how to look at it from a very broad perspective. So there are a lot of next steps. Uh, the next steps include us all working together. This is what we deem our empowerment project that we've been working at in my office. And so we, we have to, again, look at things that are hard topics mm -hmm. but are are game changers for our states, for our country. And some of those big issues are child um, care. Mm -hmm. we, we've got to have affordable, accessible, quality child care. Unfortunately, we don't have nearly enough of that across our country. Mm -hmm. You know, in Mississippi, it costs more to send an infant and a toddler to daycare for a year than it does to send one of our students for tuition to one of our great colleges or universities. <laughs> I mean, think about that. Wow. That's, that's unacceptable, right? right? I right. mean, you're a young family, a young mother, and all of a sudden you're challenged with child care costs that mm -hmm. are just over the top. So that's significant. Um, and it's got to be quality because, again, those those young children, they're going to be us one day. Yeah. So what did we do on the front end to mold them? How did we prepare them for the, their next steps? Um, certainly looking at workplace flexibility and giving the options to young parents. Um, you know, we have seen certainly through COVID that we were able to make some adjustments and to keep people in the workforce. Um, and that's going to be key right now because, again, young parents, if you don't have any options, you don't have any flexibility, then what happens? We lose them out of the workforce. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at all the other studies and you look at the young mothers, then we lose them the most mm -hmm. and we don't get them back. So we, we've got them in the workforce. We're excited that they're, they're making such a great contribution to society and then we lose them. I think that's going to be um, very important for us to create that safety net for these young families. Um, as we look at enforcement of child support, uh, you know, the fathers, they, they need to be equally responsible. If, all the studies show that 90 percent um, of the non-custodial parents that are not paying are fathers. Mm. Um, and so the great side is if they are engaged in paying for their child, then they're investing in their child. They're making a difference. And that's exactly where we want it to be. You know, that child is much more healthier and in a better situation if both parents are there supporting that child. So, you know, we're looking at some programs, too, in Mississippi that, you know, can help these fathers, help them pay as they should. Again, and what a win-win for that child. Right. Um, 
certainly a huge next big step change that must occur is we've got to fix the adoption and the foster care systems because they are broken. Mm-hmm. We're just not getting these children into loving families as we should. And what a disservice to these children. Um, and so that's key is one of our points that we're working on. And then providing resources to our young mothers and these families to help them come together and, and really help them on resources, upskilling, uh, the things that they're going to need as they go through with these young women uh, into their next step of motherhood. This is hugely transformational stuff that is totally flipping, I think, the left's narrative of what the pro-life movement is. I think that's a that's perfect. If, if we can stay on this empowerment project, first, I love that word. My wife says this thing all the time, empowered women empower women. And so the more that we can sort of boost up mothers and families, the more that they boost up their own communities, right? Like Kevin said, this is, you know, the, the, the argument from the left was always, well, you don't care about the child after it's born. You just want to force the birth and then you don't, you don't want to support it. You don't want to do all these things. We've seen more conservatives, I think, of uh, Ivanka Trump while in the White House supporting things like paid family leave. We see more Republican governors and now yourself and attorney general supporting programs like this to say, hey, you know, the, the, the buck stops here. We have to sort of, you know, it, it, we can't forget about these women after the, that child is born. Uh, can you talk about the kind of philosophy behind that? Because it is a little bit of a, a change sort of in the kind of conservative position on these things, things like paid family leave or more paid sick days or longer uh, maternity and paternity leave. Can you talk about the kind of philosophy behind this and why you think it's important? Well, it's a holistic approach. Yeah. And, and we need to stop and gravitate to the needs of these mothers, to these children, and these young families. And and you're exactly right. We have been historically known in the Republican uh, world uh, that we, we stopped when the, the birth happened, when in fact that's not true. We just don't get a lot of the highlights on what we've been doing. And, and again, I think it's a direct result of the Dobbs decision. And we are in this new Dobbs era. I think, you know, post-row kind of puts you in that negativity. Mm-hmm. But as we talk about now we're in this new Dobbs era, we do have new things to do. We do yeah. um, reach out and we are changing the empowerment for our families, for our children, and particularly allowing our mothers to grow and to be successful on anything that they choose to do. Yeah. And we're in Kentucky. So to kind of steal a phrase from Leader McConnell, went from being kind of the defensive coordinator to being the offensive coordinator here too and so that kind of changes your approach to things where for 50 years 50 plus years our side was just fighting to to sort of end what we saw as as a disgrace and now it's we've won and i think for a lot of us it was like well what do we do now and this is the blueprint i think for for a lot of us i have a question on that front do you believe based on your conversations with republicans either leadership republicans or just grassroots republicans that the party is prepared to accept the responsibility that you're laying out in this empowerment agenda. I mean, this is a huge responsibility that comes with having won a great policy victory. And, you know, I I think that uh, to to Jared's point, you know, you go 50 years and you're in one mindset and then you have to change on a dime and get yourself into another frame of mind. Are Are we ready from your perspective as Republicans to accept that? And if not yet, what do people like you and other Republican leaders have to do to, to continue to prepare the party to accept that mantle of responsibility? Well, again, I, I think it was so important with this decision. We ask for the opportunity. We ask for the job. And I truly believe we're ready. Now, getting the information, getting people to understand 
this is a lot of moving parts. This is significant on how we need to embrace uh, these changes. Uh, I will say I'm, I'm very grateful for my legislature right now. We went in with a huge packet um, and said we've identified some of these issues, whether it's tax credits for adoption, whether it's tax credit for child care, tax credit for our pregnancy crisis centers, you know, things that are a little different. Uh, again, and how could everybody be involved? So for the first time, we're seeing people step up and they want to give do dollars to the pregnancy centers or, you know, adoption credits. That's going to help out so much. Uh, we identified what the big gaps were, you know, in the adoption system, in the foster care system. We have a foster parents bill of rights that's in the legislature right now. When have we ever seen that? Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm happy to share all the things that we're doing and hopefully all states will look at all these great opportunities. It is a change to get the legislature to understand, hey, now we're here yeah. and we really can't wait. We need to affect this change immediately. Personal question, and then I, I want to get to a couple of other topics, but one of the things I've been most surprised by, maybe I shouldn't have been, but I am, is the amount of rage mm -hmm. on the left in the wake of the Dobbs decision, the attacks on pregnancy centers, the attacks on churches, uh, you know, the attempted murder of Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, the mobs that have formed around people who've been bold enough, like yourself, to take on uh, this issue and fight for your values. I'm just curious about any personal reflections you have on that rage, things you've personally experienced. Has it been as shocking for you as it has been for a lot of conservatives who've, who've been fighting on this issue for so many years? Well, you know, we all know this is such an emotionally charged issue. And I, I don't think they ever saw this coming down where it would ever change. Mm -hmm. And so when it did, yes, the, the rage is all over our country, in our states. Um, and it's been unfortunate that we've had so many um, different pregnancy centers that were, yeah. um, you know, whether they were firebombed or mm -hmm. whether there were attacks or whatever. And unfortunately, our um, different agencies were weaponized and didn't step up to prosecute these individuals. There have been zero that have happened. And to be clear, that's the Biden administration. Yeah. The Biden that has, administration. That has absolutely... absolutely turned a blind eye to this. And it's, it's really despicable. It, it truly is. Um, I knew that I would get a lot of pushback. Um, but again, when you can anonymously talk about another individual, when you can be very brutal in your comments, uh, and we knew that we'd get that. But, you know, again, the prayers, the support um, that people have given us and continue to give us to um, be bold about where we're going, what we're going to be doing next. Because, they, again, a lot of people don't even want to hear this. They don't want to talk about the Empowerment mm -hmm. Project. It's like, oh, no, you've already ruined, you know, so many lives now. No, no, we're talking about empowering lives. We are changing the conversation. We're writing a new chapter in the American history. The things you've put in this agenda ought to be bipartisan. You know, mm -hmm. they ought to be universally accepted ideas that both parties uh, could support. But I suspect you're not finding... Uh, much support for this out there uh, in liberal America because they are so fixated on abortion that they cannot seem to wrap their head around actually helping women and families and the children because they don't they, they would be they would rather fixate on the partisan battle I think than they would in working together to make families and lives better so I applaud you for uh, for the work you are doing on this and the leadership you're showing. I do have a couple of other issues I wanted to ask you about before you leave. I've been on uh, CNN a little bit lately, and it seems like the city of Jackson keeps coming up in my panels because of the water, <laughs> uh, because the state legislature uh, was trying to, I guess, intervene in the management of the city of Jackson. I guess Jackson's become per capita the homicide capital of America, unfortunately. 
And I was wondering, in your perch as attorney general, and I guess you live just outside of Jackson, what is going on in Jackson, Mississippi, and what's going to happen here? Because it, it's just outside looking in and, and the commentary I've had to provide, it, it feels like the leadership of that city is presiding over a failed state uh, on so many different fronts. Well, it, it is um, such a disappointment that we're in this, this posture. Um, the water situation is certainly out of control. Um, dollars have been awarded and not utilized to their best capability. Um, there's a new influx of dollars, and that will certainly now we have oversight, accountability. That's going to make a difference as we get the water system up and going. It, it's a heavy lift because it's been like this for years. Yeah. So we know that's going to be significant. Um, certainly we are protective of trying to make it the best utilization of the funds as quickly as possible. Um, and so we're working from that perspective. The crime is out of control. Yeah. You know, this is, again, not, not one of those number ones that you want to be in. Um, and so I serve as the chief law enforcement officer as well as the chief legal officer. So this is key for us. We are working with our partners. We are trying to be supportive on training, anything that we can possibly do to uplift and support our law enforcement. Because, again, you're having so many children killing children. Uh, and those are a significant number of the homicides in Mississippi, in, particularly in the Jackson area. So why are those kids out of school? Right. How did they, you know, get the access to kill each other in broad daylight? Uh, so, we, you know, it's it's a bundle of problems that we've got to peel back and and make a decision on how we can be supportive of our law enforcement. It's really kind of stunning when you think about what does it take to live in any city? You know, you should be able to drink the water. You should be able to walk down the street without mm -hmm. fearing for your life. And, and the local leaders there have really failed on two just sort of basic you know, what are your human needs and and what's the purpose of government? And yet there's so much resistance to the idea that the state government might have to intervene here. I mean, it's your state capital and uh, and everybody has a vested interest, I think, in in making the city more livable and manageable, manageable. But the resistance to it, um, it, it it's, again, it's another situation where I, I just think you get people in office sometimes and they can't set partisanship aside long enough to take a step back and say, What's the best outcome here that we could all work, you know, towards together? And it strikes me that the mayor and some of those folks in, in Jackson just don't have that mindset right now. Well, I, I think it's unfortunate as well. I think people need to stop and remember you were elected. Yeah. You're here mm -hmm. to serve. Yeah. You're here to serve others. This is a compassionate service that you've signed up for. And you should always do that. It should never be about self-service. It should be about what's the better good? How do we make a better tomorrow for people that are engaged? And you know, you said something about um, the violence, too. Um, one of the things we've been working very um, diligently on with our law enforcement is the domestic violence. Mm. And so that goes back to the children. Mm -hmm. So many times, who's in those houses? It's the children. Yeah. And, and they're in there. And we have worked with our law enforcement. And because you see a lot of the ambushes, you see a lot of the law enforcement that are ambushed in these domestic violence situations, uh, we have now created and have in place the first domestic registry mm. uh, online so that our officers all across our state can go in and see this individual that's been called in has, you know, a number of other warrants or violations oh there's probably two children in this house to help them know to call for backup to know that there might be children in there to know that there might be a mental health issue yeah um, mm -hmm. again 
we also have to protect our law enforcement yes. because yeah. these are the men and women who every day they wake up and they go work for us. Yeah. You know, they are running into danger and harm and they kiss their families goodbye and we all pray that they go back. Mm-hmm. But they give of themselves unconditionally. And so it's for us too to be able to support them unconditionally. Before we do the famous lightning round, you're on the ballot this year. Mississippi, Kentucky, and Louisiana, uh, the three off-state, uh, off-year elections in these states. How do you feel about your campaign? What's your campaign website? What's your prognosis and prognostication for uh, conservatives and Republicans in Mississippi elections this year? Thank you. It's an exciting year. I just have a general opponent. We're looking forward to continuing to work on many areas, uh, particularly the Dives case and how we'll implement the Empowerment Project. But it's exciting. I'm so honored and so humbled to serve as the Attorney General and looking forward to the next four years. And if somebody in our listening audience wants to get in touch with your campaign or make a contribution, how do they reach you? Lynn Fitch from Mississippi. Lynn Fitch from Mississippi. All right, before you go, famous lightning round. Short answer or yes or no questions only. You obviously are famous on the Dobbs case. What is the next big Supreme Court case that you are waiting to see come down? What's on your mind uh, that they're considering right now? It has to do with Section 230. Section 230, okay. What's the best lunch spot near your office? Near my office. Lunch. Let me think about that. You know, Mississippi's known for so many places. I can't give you a lightning answer on that, you know. All right, we'll come back to it. What's the book on your nightstand right now? I'm reading John Grisham's um, The Boys from Biloxi. You're obviously an elected attorney general. There are some states with Democrat elected AGs. Have you met one that you consider to be your favorite or your closest ally in terms of trying to find common ground? As far as the Democrat AG? You know, absolutely, because we've been very engaged. I I can't tell you a favor because I I have had (laughs) such great um, friendships with some of the colleagues on the other side of the aisle, particularly in the area of our our, um, social media. Yeah, interesting. All right. Uh, Obviously, our podcast is called Flower Country. We're sort of lampoon the way the... Uh, the coastal media takes a takes a dim view of, of what we're doing out here in Middle America. Do you consider Mississippi to be a flyover state? Oh, absolutely. We, we, <laughs> we're all the same, but we we are. But I think what's important is that we're staying strong and united together. We have mm-hmm. so many common issues, and to talk about it, and mm-hmm. to talk about solutions, and be proactive. Isn't that exciting? Oh yeah. Final question: uh, Joe Biden's gearing up to run for reelection. How would you grade on a on a normal School grading scale, A to F. How would you grade his performance so far? Oh, it'd have to be an F. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> look at the uh, the attorney generals for the Republicans, um, the colleagues. We have sued this administration over 100 times. We've written over 150 comment letters. So if you have to do that, you, you know that you're in trouble. Yeah. All right. Lynn Fitch, the attorney general of the state of Mississippi. You've been a great guest. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for all you do. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.